Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. Now, before we get started, if you are a young kid and want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks over to my left over here waving their hands. They love to hang out with you, so feel free to make your way that direction. And for the rest of us, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, as we continue in our year-long plus series working through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 50 is where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Now, before we get started with that, I want to ask, start off by asking a quick question. How many of you are the kinds of people that when reading a book or watching a movie, maybe skip to the end to try to figure out what happens first? Go ahead, be honest, right? You're those kinds of people. My wife and I recently just started watching, I know we're kind of late to the party with this, we started recently watching The Crown, and we've been, I've been watching it just so fascinated by all the ins and outs and the details of that, and I find myself, you know, after an episode trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen next? So I'll like Google or Wikipedia something real quick. So I'm that kind of person trying to figure out like, how does the story kind of end or what's going to happen next? I'm totally in that camp. And for our time this morning, the reason I say that is I actually want to begin at the end of what most of us call the Joseph story. I want to start off in the end and actually, if we can, read the whole, this little paragraph here in Genesis chapter 50, then actually work our way back and see what kind of led up to this process as to how Joseph is saying what he says in Genesis 50. So actually to start off this morning, maybe something a little different, I want to actually invite all of us, if we can, to stand as we read uh, God's word together. And this is Genesis Chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of their brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, "Behold, we are your servants." But Joseph said to them, "Do not fear, for I for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This week I came across a quote from the late African-American writer James Baldwin. He said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. It's no secret that we live in a cultural moment filled with hate and anger. Whether it's race, politics, COVID, name your cultural issue of choice, hate is just all over kind of the air we breathe in our culture. And as we come to the story of Joseph, Joseph, if there's anyone who has reason to hate, who has a reason to enact revenge and to be angry with his brothers, it's Joseph. 
Think of all the things that have happened to Joseph in his past. We'll talk about some of them this morning. But as we look at the paragraph we just read, Genesis chapter 50, it seems like Joseph has come to this place where he can say to his brothers, yes, the actions you did were evil, but God meant them for good. He comforts them. He essentially forgives them for what they did to him. Now, here's the thing. Genesis chapter 50, especially verse 20, is kind of this iconic verse, especially in the Old Testament. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the saving of many lives. We love that verse, but sometimes what we forget is that Joseph didn't just, didn't just go from the pit to then all, just all of a sudden saying those words in an instant. There was a process there. And this is why I want to kind of back up the timeline a little bit and take a look at two key visits that Joseph has with his brothers before we get to Genesis 50. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 50, but there's two key visits that Joseph has with his brothers that kind of reveal and show the process that I think Joseph is going through to eventually get to this place of Genesis chapter 50. So with that said, visit number one. And as we kind of back the, the time frame up a, a little bit, we find Joseph early on in his time in Egypt, he's essentially the most powerful man in the world, second only to Pharaoh. And he's in charge of administering this sort of massive effort to sort of organize and kind of consolidate all the food during this major famine that's happening, not only in Egypt, but throughout the rest of the surrounding world. And Joseph, being one of the most powerful men, he's well-known, he's established, he's organized, he's very well thought of, at least in the minds of the Egyptians at this point in the story. But back home, Joseph and his older brothers, they're suffering from the same famine as well. And Jacob, their father, tells the brothers that, hey, we're in this moment of need, this moment of trying to get food. And so he sends the brothers down to Egypt because there's, news has gotten out that, hey, there's food in Egypt and we can kind of survive by getting some food there. Now, as the brothers approach Joseph, Joseph recognizes that these are, in fact, his brothers. But the brothers have no idea that this is Joseph. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 42. It will be up on the screen here, starting in verse 8. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. Remember that this was last week, right? Them bowing down before him. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness, so that can be translated the barrenness of the land. Now as you read Genesis 42, you might kind of think to yourself, why would Joseph be accusing them of being spies? That seems like a little insensitive, right? It seems a little, you know, I don't know, presumptuous. But think about this. Try to place yourself, and I'm gonna, I'll be kind of saying this a lot during this teaching. Try to place yourself in the, in the shoes of the characters. In particular, Joseph in this moment. If you're Joseph, you've been beaten, left for dead, thrown into a pit, essentially human trafficked to a foreign land. And it's been years since you've seen the people that supposedly love you do this to you. And the first, this is the first time that you've seen the brothers in years. How would you be feeling? How would you be responding? Think about not only the physical harm that's happened to Joseph, but the emotional and psychological harm that's happened to him as well. And you can see perhaps Joseph, he's having to process, he's having to wonder, he's having to kind of go through his own sort of mind. Who are these people really? Yes, they're my brothers. But who are they? What kind of people are they? And so he, yes, accuses them of being spies. But as the story continues, Joseph essentially is going to have the brothers prove that they really aren't spies. 
And so what he's going to do is he's going to have the brothers go back. Because word gets out as they're in this conversation that, hey, there's actually one more brother, the younger brother Benjamin, that we left behind back with our father Jacob in our homeland. And Joseph says, okay, show me that you're not spies. And so what he does is then he says to the brothers, one of your older ones will stay here with me. The rest of you can go back, go back to Jacob, your father, and bring your younger brother Benjamin back. Show me and, tell, and show me and demonstrate what you're saying is actually true. And at this point in the story, the brothers, they begin to kind of reflect upon, okay, we're in kind of a little bit of trouble here. And they begin to reflect and go and say this in verse 21. The brothers say this. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, referring to Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And perhaps we see the first inkling of the brothers beginning to have a little bit of remorse, a little bit of regret as to what they did back to Joseph all the way back in Genesis 37. As Joseph is telling the older brothers, hey, you need to go back, bring the younger brother, and then come back and you'll demonstrate that you're not actually spies, a little bit of reflection is happening on the part of the older brothers. We're being placed in this situation now because of what we did years ago to our younger brother. And eventually... Joseph's older brothers, they'll come back with their younger brother, Benjamin, which leads us to visit number two. Again, try to imagine as we read some of these texts, you being one of these characters or a part of these characters in this story. But visit number two, the brothers approach. Joseph, again, sees and recognizes that these are his brothers. He recognizes and sees Benjamin. But again, just remember, the older brothers do not recognize at this point that this is Joseph. This is Genesis 43, looking at visit number two now, starting in verse 29. And he, Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke of to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Now notice, it's pretty obvious in that passage there, Joseph weeps. Joseph has this moment where he sees his brothers. He sees Benjamin in particular. He breaks down. He weeps. He even has to kind of retreat to this separate spot because he's so, I guess, emotionally overwhelmed at the sight of his brothers. It seems like the text says he has compassion on them. And yet at the same time, there's this process that he has to go through himself. These are the people that I, I want to be in relationship with. These are the people that I grew up together with. Yet these are the very same people that have caused me great harm. And imagine, again, being Joseph in this moment. Imagine the processing that he has to go through. Imagine the, the, the thoughts and the emotions that he has to work through in his own mind. Joseph is torn here. He weeps when he first sees his brothers. He weeps when he sees Benjamin. It seems like he clearly has affection for them. But what's going on here? Well, I imagine that Joseph is processing in and of himself, are these people safe to be around? Are these people different? Have they changed? Have they grown? This isn't just Joseph parachuting into Genesis 50 and, and the first time he sees the brothers, you know, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, I'm going to speak words of comfort, boom, kumbaya, we're all, we're all family now. There's a process here. There's some work that has to be done, both on the part of Joseph processing what they did to him and obviously trying to see, have the brothers really changed? Have they grown? Have they become different? 
And what happens actually in this second visit, Joseph is actually going to test the brothers the second time. And as the brothers this time head back to their father, back in Canaan, back where they're from, as they carry supplies and food back, because again, there's the famine happening, Joseph, he intentionally places this valuable silver cup in the, in the sack of the younger brother, Benjamin. And again, you might be wondering, okay, that seems like a little, I don't know, not cool. But again, have some empathy for Joseph, right? And so as the brothers make their, their kind of journey back to Canaan, back to their father, this very valuable silver cup has been intentionally placed in the carrying bag of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And what happens? Well, Joseph, he's going to send his servants, he's going to send his workers, basically to kind of chase down the brothers as they've made, began their journey home. And Joseph essentially is going to accuse the brothers, hey, you've stolen from me. You've come here to get food for this famine. I've been generous to give you food. Again, remember the brothers don't know that this is Joseph. And Joseph accuses the brothers of stealing this valuable silver cup. And the brothers go, no, no, we haven't stolen. They're bewildered. They, they, they can't believe that they'd be accused of this. And the brothers say, you know what? Whoever's sack this, this cup is in, whoever carrying case has this cup, that person deserves to die. And so at that moment, they empty their sacks. And lo and behold, the verse 22 of Genesis 44 says the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And can you imagine the brothers? A little bit of backstory. Benjamin is now the new favored son of their father, Jacob. Remember, Joseph was the favored son a few chapters ago. Now Benjamin is kind of is in that role now of the favored son. And the brothers recognize now that Benjamin's going to be in trouble, their father's going to be in complete distress. And again, all of the, 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 the memory of what happened in Genesis 37 is probably right at the forefront here. What happened last time there was a favored son? What happened last time we were in this sort of predicament? Well, what happens after this? After this, the, the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack, Judah, one of the older brothers, steps up to the plate and basically says, you know what? Don't harm Benjamin. Don't take Benjamin. Take me instead. And Judah essentially substitutes himself on behalf of his younger brother, Benjamin. A beautiful picture, I think, of Jesus himself, who will come from the tribe of Judah. And it's at that point in the story, the moment Joseph sees the courage and the bravery and also the self-sacrifice of the brothers that Joseph himself finally breaks down completely. In the, in the best sense there. At the beginning of Genesis 45, Joseph has just seen this courageous, sacrificial act on the part of Judah. And I just have to read this. Genesis 45, starting in verse 1, the text says this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. And he wept aloud so that all the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, am I Joseph? Is my, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But look at the end of verse 3. But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Again, imagine being the brothers at this point. There's been a few interactions now between what they now recognize to be Joseph and them, the brothers. And finally, it's revealed to them that this really powerful man in the Egyptian government is actually the younger brother that they betrayed years ago. Can you imagine the look on their faces? The feeling of like, oh no, we're in trouble now. Because now Joseph is in the position of prestige and power. And they're essentially going to be at the mercy of Joseph. But look what happens 
in the following verse, in verse 4 of 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And look at this, verse 5. And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. See, Joseph is going to say, you sold me here. Kind of getting, we're getting in the ballpark of Genesis 50. You meant this for evil. You sold me here. But look at this, the last half of the verse. But God sent me here to preserve life. You sold me here, and also God sent me here to preserve life. We're getting in the ballpark here of Genesis 50. And with that, I want to kind of camp out a little bit more here in Genesis 50. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. The brothers are now have recognized that this man is actually Joseph himself. And as you kind of read the chapters between 45 and 50, what ends up happening is the rest of the family, Jacob included, make their way down to Egypt. Jacob, their father, and Joseph are finally reunited. Jacob blesses all of the sons, and eventually Jacob himself will pass away. And it's at that moment when Jacob, the father of all these brothers, passes away and dies that the brothers then have this moment of like, oh no. Our father has passed away, and perhaps the only reason why Joseph was actually being courteous and nice to us was because he knew that our father was still alive. And that's why in Genesis 50, verse 15, the text says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back now for all the evil that we've done to him. And they're at this moment of, okay, what's going to happen now? How is Joseph really going to respond now that, my fa- that, now that our father Jacob has passed away? And as we look at this, hone in on this section here in Genesis 50, Joseph's response, again, remember there's been a process here of interacting and engaging with the brothers, weeping and crying and thinking about, maybe perhaps wondering, are these people actually safe to be around? There's been a process to this point. It's not a straight line for Joseph to get to what he says in Genesis 50. And as we see, though, Joseph's response, we'll see a response that really models Christ of forgiveness and compassion and comfort. Remember the quote I started out with from James Baldwin, in a culture that so easily clings on to hate, what can the story of Joseph show us, teach us, about how might we respond in a similar way, that of the example of Jesus and Joseph himself. So in order to do this, what I want to do is actually just kind of break this down into three main sort of points, really phrase it sort of as kind of three main questions for us to consider for not only this text but for our own lives as well. Questions to consider how might we respond not with the hate that our culture is so into right now, but with the response of love and compassion and forgiveness. All right, sound good? Three questions will kind of be the rest of our time this morning in Genesis 50. So the first question is this. As we sort of process our response to hate and and betrayal and all these sorts of things, the first question to consider is, what is our place? What is our place? Look at verse 19 with me of Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? See, here's the thing. Right off the bat, Joseph understands that he is not in the place of God. See, very terrible things happen when humans think that they can be in the place of God and act from a place of having God-like authority, especially within relational settings. And the thing is, this temptation to put yourself in the place of God, to, to seize control, 
to seize autonomy, to manipulate a situation, to do what you think is just in your own eyes, to be in the place of God, that temptation is as old as the Garden of Eden. Remember what the snake said to the first humans? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Joseph clearly, when he asked that question, am I in the place of God? Clearly the answer to that question for Joseph is no. I'm not in the place of God. There's been this moment, this process for Joseph to come to this place of essentially surrendering sort of that idea that I could pretend to even enact for one moment God-like authority in relational situations. And he comes to this place of recognizing that my ideas, my perception on reality, my limited vision of, of, of what's happening, I'm not God in those moments. There's this posture, not only does Joseph understand, because he rightly understands his place before God and others, there's also this posture of humility. This posture of recognizing that I'm not God. And that in these moments where I'm confronted and challenged, that Joseph recognizes his place. He's a servant of God. That's why earlier in Genesis 45, that Joseph said himself, I was sent here by God. He recognizes that God is God and I'm not. I've been sent here by him. Which leads then to the second question I have. If Joseph can understand and he's understanding his place before God and others, that posture of humility, the second question though is this. What is our perspective? What is our perspective? Look at me, look at with me verse 20, that iconic line. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, in verse 20, notice the perspective that Joseph has on this situation. The perspective. Again, I'm not, I don't want to make this like linear or easy or kind of cliche, right? There's been a, a journey. There's been a process that Joseph has been on to get to this point. And some of us, it, it might take a really long time to get to this point. And some of us might be kind of stuck and not actually at a Genesis 50 verse 20 place. So I want to make complete space for all of that. And sometimes it's like we're in the valley. We're in this sort of dark season. And it's sort of hard to, to see with clarity and perspective kind of how God is working, why things are happening, and what's God's plan through it all. 100%. And oftentimes what we need, again, as a journey, as a process, with friends and family coming along our side, is to gain a more godlike perspective on a situation. To sort of, if we're stuck in the valley, to be sort of raised up, if you will, to kind of see with more clarity and more vision as to perhaps what God is actually doing in any given situation. And the perspective that Joseph has, where he can be completely honest, right? You meant this for evil. Right? The honesty in this perspective is not sidestepping, is not ignoring, is not sort of minimizing the pain and the evil that Joseph has faced and that the brothers have done. Remember, Joseph has been beaten, abandoned, left for dead, human trafficked to a foreign land. And he is honest about this. You meant this for evil. Full stop. And in the same breath, in the same sentence, God meant it for good. That God is at work in this. And this actually echoes all the way back to what God's been doing all the, from the beginning of, of the book of Genesis. God's design, God's heart is for good. 
In the creation story, it is good, it is good, it is good. This is God's intent, goodness for his creation and for his people. But what do humans do? Well, ever since page three of our Bibles, chapter three, it's been humans just turning what God has created for good and creating evil out of it. And what God has done in response is to take the human evil and mess that we and all of us, if we're honest, participate in, and to work it for good. God has been doing this all through the book of Genesis. And some, many people smarter than me argue that Genesis 50 verse 20 is essentially a summary statement of everything God has been up to in the book of Genesis. Humans doing evil and God working it for good. And this gets at what Jesus himself has done for us. That the evil that has been done to Jesus, your sin and my sin, the the most evil thing to ever happen, the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of of, of the, the, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, the betrayal and the execution of the innocent man Jesus, God took that evil and worked it for good, for the saving of our lives that we might have fellowship and relationship with him and that the whole cosmos, the whole world might be redeemed through the finished work of Christ. And this work in Genesis 50, these words here are pointing to the work that God is gonna do and has done in the person of Christ. And that we can see that even though, if we're honest, you and I, more often than we like to admit, participate in all sorts of different forms to varying degrees of evil in this world. That none of us are innocent. But that God has taken those situations and those actions and those thoughts and he's working them for his plan. And that ultimately Christ has come to forgive us and has worked good in it through that. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. That in Christ... What we have meant for evil, what, what others have meant for evil, it's not easy. Again, hear, hear my heart in this. It's not a simple, easy, kind of straight line through all this. It's messy for sure. We talked about that last week. But the redemptive word of the gospel is that God is in, it does that. He redeems. He takes the evil and the brokenness and works it for good. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, right? That God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And again, there's a tension here, right? On one hand, you meant it for evil and God has meant it for good. And some of us, and I've been there too, right? How how can both of those statements be true? How can both of those things be true? Does this mean that God is somehow complicit in evil? Does this mean somehow that the, the, the brothers aren't responsible for their, no, no, no. The brothers are responsible for their actions full stop. The evil that they've done is their actions, full stop. And again, the the tension of what's God's responsibility in this? And the tension of like good and evil and how how God works in the world. I get that. That tension's real. And there's no way I'm going to solve that for you, you know, in a 30-minute teaching on a Sunday. But at the same time, though, in that tension, I think there's a few sort of key things that I found super helpful. Sort of three sort of main points that I just want to very quickly kind of address. The first one is this, God is good. In those situations where we're wondering and in the stories like Joseph that we have both in our lives and we read scripture, God is good. It might seem simple, but sometimes the most simple things are the most easily, the things that we most easily forget. Number one, God is good. Number two, evil is evil. 
It might, again, might seem simple, but when we see evil out in the world and we see injustice out in the world, Christians should be the first ones to step up to the plate and say, no, that is wrong. That is evil. That is not the heart of God. So God is good, evil is evil. And number three, God is not the author of evil, but God can and does take the evil of this world and work it for good. God is not the author of evil, but God can and does take the evil of this world that often we participate in and work it for good. Now I say all this, right, to understand that the Joseph story is trying to teach us something not only about Joseph, but about God himself. That God is somehow, even though we might not always be able to see it, working behind the scenes, working through all these different means to bring about good, to bring about saving of many lives, that that's God's heart. And to have this perspective, to to saturate our minds, and to have this perspective is so vital and so key for us as followers of Jesus. That, friends, we live in a, a world today where there's all sorts of different perspectives out there. All sorts of, like, hot takes on what is true and reliable and good in the world. And in a world full of hate, in a world that is filled with pain, in despair and anger. It is so vital that we have the perspective of God himself as revealed to us in the scriptures. Again, I don't want to make this seem like, oh, it's just this easy thing. And if you're in a, a moment of difficulty, just quote Genesis 50 verse 28 you. That could actually, in some instances, actually be more harmful than helpful at, at a given point. Again, think about the process that Joseph has gone through to get to this. And as part of that process, though, it's coming to this place where little by little, and sometimes it's a few steps forward and more steps back and then a few steps forward, increasingly gaining a godly perspective on reality. Increasingly, little by little, having our minds saturated in this text, in in the scriptures. There's so many perspectives out there, so many things vying for our attention to to show us, some of it good, some of it not good, some of it in line with the way of Jesus, some of it not. But friends, we have to have our minds saturated in the perspective of God as revealed to us in the scriptures. I'm a huge proponent of this. That our worldview, the way we see reality is filtered through the lens of scripture. But as I was thinking about this, how can we grow in our perspective? The scriptures for sure, 100%, full stop, top of the list. How can also we grow in our perspective in this? One thing in particular is I was thinking about this specifically for us as a church as Wellspring. Is that one thing really kind of came to mind and stood out. And again, we live in this cultural moment. There's tons of pain. There's tons of suffering. There's tons of hurt. And asking that question, how might we grow in our perspective, a godly perspective? One thing that came to mind is simply this, intergenerational relationships. You might be wondering, hey, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. Is, let me just kind of speak from my own sort of age demographic. I'm, I'm, I, just, I just turned 30. What often I see oftentimes is people my age and perhaps younger, when suffering and trials and difficulty happens, there's often this tendency to, you know, want to get mad at God or blame God. And there's this thing that's happening right now called deconstruction. People just sort of walking away from the faith because of difficulty and of a, a, a negative view of God. And again, I want to be compassionate and understanding that for sure there is ample room to doubt and to struggle in our faith, 100%. That 
that we need to create space for people who are struggling with their view of God and going through difficulty. That we don't just sidestep that and slap Romans 8 on it or Genesis 50 on it and just kind of put a band-aid and just make it all happen. No, no. We have to give space to process and give space for people to work through their doubts. That I believe the church should be the safest place to doubt and to have questions. That my dream is that when my kids get older, and as they're processing maybe in their teenage years or in their 20s, and they have questions and doubts, and they're struggling with their view of God, the first thing that comes to mind is, is I'm not going to go away from the church. I want to go to church. Because those people love me and care for me. So that's, that's there, 100%. I believe that. And at the same time, what I don't want is to, for people to live in like this perpetual state of deconstruction and doubt. To just live there, to make your home there, can, can be really damaging. And I've seen it with, with good friends I grew up with, that they've essentially just deconstructed themselves out of the Christian faith. And so on, on that side as well, this is where I think intergener intergenerational relationships can play a huge part. We're part of a church, Wellspring, here, that we have the huge blessing of having people in their teens and their 20s all the way into their 70s and 80s. And one thing, and it's a beautiful thing, and one thing that I've personally experienced and seen, in particular just through my own role here and just being a part of this church, is that the gift of hearing stories from people a decade, two, three, four down the line that have suffered tremendously, that have gone through tremendous pain, and are in this room and watching online and still faithfully following and loving Jesus. That there is something powerful to that. And friends, especially if you're my age, do not worship at the idolatry of youth. Do not just, it matters where you're gaining your perspective from. There is godly men and women that have gone through the worst pain and suffering similar to that of a Joseph story, and that are loving and serving Jesus now decades later. It's not easy. They'll be honest about that. And this is all a part of this question, what is our perspective? And I just submit that as just perhaps a practical way. If that's you in this place, that's you maybe watching, struggling with your view of God, struggling with maybe a circumstance, perhaps Having someone who's not just in your own age demographic, but a, but a decade or two down the line, there's tremendous wisdom in hearing. Wisdom from outside of perhaps your own little kind of bubble or perspective. And I just say that because, friends, I want all of you, I want all of us to not just live in this place of, see, here's kind of the, the two sort of pitfalls, if you will. That if we just sort of cling to all of the, the, the reality of pain in the world and the reality of the brokenness of this world, if we just live there, it often can lead to cynicism. It often can just lead to, to bitterness and looking and seeing out in the world and just everyone and everything is evil. And if we ignore the pain, if we ignore the first half of that famous line in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant it for you, if we ignore that and do the opposite, then it creates, I think, this naive optimism. And somewhere in between, if I could put it like this, between sort of this unhealthy pessimism and this sort of naive optimism is the, this, this beautiful place where we can be honest and filled with hope. Where the honesty can be there. This is evil. This is hard. This is difficult. 
And to honor both that and the process to getting there, yet God is work. God is at work. That there's hope. That suffering, pain, and death do not get the last word in the Christian story. That God one day, Revelation 21, will wipe away every tear. And that suffering and pain will be no more. And at the same time, Peter tells us that we have a living hope right now in the present. That yes, we have a future hope, but we also have the gift of a living hope right now in the present. And so friends, our perspective matters. How and where are you gaining your perspective? It's a question to think about this week. Which leads me though to my last, my last question. What is our response? Take a look at with me, verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, notice what Joseph doesn't do. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't take this moment to enact revenge on him. The text says, he, he says, do not fear. He comforts them. And he speaks tenderly to them. Literally, that can be translated. He spoke to their hearts. He's speaking to the deepest recesses of their being. I mean, imagine, hopefully, these brothers, they feel the guilt and the weight of what they've done. They feel the burden of what they've done to Joseph. And here comes Joseph, verse 21. He's speaking tenderly to their hearts. You know, this, this idea of, of this, these, these words here, of comforting and speaking directly to their hearts. There's a, another place that this, this sort of pairing of words is used in Scripture. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. And it's this famous part in Isaiah 40 where God is speaking to Israel and saying, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them or speak literally to their hearts. And it's these words that come from God to the children of Israel who have been in sin for, for decades, if not longer. And what we see here is Joseph. Joseph is modeling the compassionate, comforting heart of God to his brothers. That Joseph's response is not to turn hate for hate, but is to come to this place where it's tender words. It's words of comfort. And again, hear me out here. This isn't an easy kind of beeline sort of thing. There's been a journey here. Remember those two visits that Joseph had with his brothers. And perhaps for us, thinking about what is our response, that there's, there's actually a process that needs to happen in how we respond. That for Joseph, more or less, to maybe put modern language on it, he was kind of establishing some boundaries in those initial visits. He was going through, are these people actually safe to be around? Have they changed? Have they repented? Have they grown? Can I actually be in relationship with them? And I think there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in not just going from the beeline of from the pit to forgiveness, but actually working through the relational mess. And actually working through, have these other people changed and grown, establishing a little bit of a rhythm of boundaries. And friends, again, that is very complex and it's difficult and it can be very challenging and very hard. And this is where, again, I think the gift of community and wisdom from others is so vital. To not do this journey in isolation. 
to not do this journey just even you and your Bible and praying before God, but in community together. That if this is you this morning, that I would just humbly submit that this process hopefully can be a process where trusted friends and family members and people that you know and love that love Jesus can speak words of wisdom and life into your situation. That can come alongside and, and, and help you journey to, yes, we want to be a people who embody and show the compassion and love of Christ, to show the forgiveness of Christ. Paul says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that that's God's heart, that that's God's design, that we get to be ambassadors of this ministry of reconciliation. But friends, that journey to get there is often messy and difficult, long and hard. And as we think about this story, and think about again Joseph modeling the comforting words of God, I just think about for all of us this morning, that whatever situation that you might find yourself, that perhaps you can relate to this, at, to varying degrees and at various points in the Joseph story, but to understand this, that for many of us, that this year has been tremendously difficult, that this year has been a very difficult year on a variety of different levels and across a variety of different circumstances. No two stories are the same. But I do think for all of us, perhaps, that we all might be needing and craving the comforting words of God himself. That we would need God to speak tenderly to our hearts this morning. That perhaps there is some pain and hurt or disappointment there's some grief, maybe something small, something big. But God comes along to us and desires to speak words of comfort, tender words of comfort to our hearts. You know, the story of Joseph, it's a story. It's not a list of three or five bullet points of like, this is what God's doing in suffering. It's a story. And as a story, I think it's inviting us to sit with it a little bit. It's inviting us to, to read and reread the story and allow this story, the story of Joseph, to help us reflect on our own stories and to recognize and to see where is God working in, in my story? Where does God want to take evil that's happened in my life or is happening in my life and work it for good? Because, friends, the same God who worked in the Joseph story is working in your story and in my story today. That the story of Joseph is, is a story, an invitation to a deeper trust. A deeper trust that the same God, even though we might not be able to see it, even though we might not be able to connect the dots like Joseph is right now in Genesis 50, that the same God who's working through Genesis 37 through 50 is the same God who's present with us today. And the same God who's working in your life and in my life. Taking what is evil and working it for good. Will you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. God, we thank you that, that death and pain and evil do not get the final word. And God, as we reflect upon your goodness, as we think about the character of who you are, God, may we just come to this place of deeper trust. God, may you 
even right now, would you speak tender words of comfort to our hearts? God, may we know, not just intellectually, but deep within our being. May we know your comforting presence in our lives. God, would you bring healing where there needs to be healing? Would you bring encouragement where we need encouragement? And God, would you bring comfort where we need comfort? God, as we worship you, God, may you fill us with your joy and your hope. God, if there's any words that have been, that I've said this morning that are not of you, may they be forgotten. But God, if there's anything that's been said this morning that is of you, may God, you plant that deep within us. May you help us to be a people that are humbly dependent on your words for life, for our very being. God, speak words of comfort over us this morning. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name.